Hello and welcome back to Security Insights, the podcast that takes a deeper look at today's most important issues in cybersecurity and beyond. I'm Stephen Pritchard, editor and presenter. Research by industry analyst Forrester suggests that nation-state cyber attacks are on the increase. And this trend started even before the Russian invasion of Ukraine. In fact, state-sponsored attacks on private sector firms have doubled over the last four years. And Forrester's research found that attacks are now bolder and more severe. That's as well as more frequent. Attackers are changing their goals too. We're seeing a lot more focus on denial of service, data destruction and even outright theft. That's a shift away from the sabotage and espionage most often associated with cyber attacks by government agents. And that also changes the way businesses need to defend against them. Our guest on this episode is Forrester analyst and lead author of the report, Ali Mellon. I started by asking her how we know that nation-state attacks are on the rise. We track a lot of this information internally. We have a yearly security survey of thousands of security decision makers to better understand their challenges and their priorities and in a lot of cases, the attacks that they're seeing. So we're seeing data based upon that. And then also, you can see in the report that I pulled some information from the Council on Foreign Relations, which has actually been tracking this year over year. And one of the interesting pieces that I found with this um, data is since I was tracking a particular niche of state-sponsored attacks that are on the private sector, I was actually able to see a 100% increase um, over the past four years of the attacks that are that are facing the private sector from specifically from nation state threat actors. So a pretty big jump. And the way that these attacks have changed are particularly interesting as well. For example, we're seeing a lot more focus on things like financial theft, denial of service, and data destruction than we had previously when it was more focused on things like um, sabotage or espionage in previous years. You're also highlighting it's not just the frequency of the attacks, but it's also the severity. So how would you define that? What would cause you to categorize an attack as more severe than an attack from, say, five years ago? Most of the attacks that we have been used to in the past have been, especially when it comes to nation state activity on private enterprises, have been very focused on espionage and on things that you can accomplish quietly. <laughs> Even in some of the more destructive attacks, they've been much more quieter than others. What we've seen recently is a lot of these attacks are getting much bolder and much more targeted. So if you look at, as an example, some of the attacks that we saw against Ukraine um, during the initial aspects of the Ukraine-Russia conflict, a lot of those were much more destructive in that their intent was either to stop a particular activity from happening and disrupt a particular process or just outright destroy a particular process. There are also, outside of a kinetic conflict, some other examples that are particularly interesting. For example, in 2022, North Korea has been stealing cryptocurrency to fund its nuclear weapons program. That's a much more destructive attack because it goes beyond that just stealing information and gets to actually stealing what can be a currency from a particular private enterprise. 
there's some interesting other um, much more bold attacks that have been happening as well. If you look at what happened, for example, in 2022 with Linus Rare Earth Mineral, um, which is a company that's based out of Asia, and they were actually targeted with a disinformation campaign to erode their credibility as it attempted to expand business into the US. Because ultimately, that expanding into the U.S. was seen as a threat to nations with competing interests within Asia. So even going so far as to institute disinformation campaigns to try to destroy the credibility of a private enterprise. So overall, they're just more overt and in many cases, much more destructive, whether it's physical destruction or temporary disruption of a process or even trying to destroy the credibility of a particular company. And the threat is a lot broader then than the conventional idea that someone's going to try to break into a system and either disrupt it or steal data when you're encompassing within the landscape of nation state attacks, you're encompassing misinformation, disinformation, as well as something that is more conventionally associated with hacking. The way that I talk about this is actually taken from uh, a concept from the military realm, which is Khan's escalation ladder, which was originally meant to describe an escalation ladder of things that happened during the course of war, ultimately leading to something like a nuclear attack. But in this case, I've applied it to cyber attacks. And so we can see that there's a series of different things that nation state threat actors do during a particular incident where they're trying to achieve a particular goal or a means to a particular end. And they can go from strategic, more nonviolent conflict, steady state attacks like espionage, espionage, misdis or malinformation, even tampering, before they escalate into more tactical and more focused on violent conflict point in time attacks like moving into plundering, disruptware and destructive wear, things like ransomware and, and other cyber attacks that are meant to destroy as opposed to just access or alter integrity. So it's probably worth unpicking those because, again, espionage is relatively well known. But if you look at, say, destructive wear and disrupt wear, what do you understand by those and what's the driving force behind them? Most often, disrupt wear is really focused on that ransomware use case um, or things like a DDoS, you know, attempting to stop a particular process from taking place over a set period of time, but not necessarily permanently. That's where the line moves into destructive wear, which is much more focused on destroying a particular asset. So typically that type of attack is used to move from the cyber realm to more of a kinetic realm. So a good example from the past would be something like Stuxnet, where you're ultimately looking to destroy lab equipment over time. It's not necessarily going to be incredibly explosive. It could be something that just chips away at a particular process or technology over time, but it can be incredibly costly and prevent a particular operation from taking place. Um, so that's the the main difference between those two. When you get to plundering, that one was particularly interesting to me because we don't typically think of nation states plundering from 
the private sector, unless they're in situations of of war, in which case it tends to be much more targeted. But that is actually something that's very much so within the realm of cyber attackers, especially nation state actors, um, so that they can gain funds to do whatever it is that they want to do within their country and, and further their own geopolitical means. And if the opportunity is there, then people may just take advantage of it anyway. Definitely. Absolutely. Another one that's on the list, though, is tampering. And this is an interesting one, impacting the integrity and trust around data. And that's perhaps something that hasn't been as widely considered as some of the other vectors. Are you seeing more attempts to tamper with data through the monitoring that you do? Tampering is an interesting one because it can be very difficult to prove and it can be very difficult to attribute. Now, one of the things that we've seen with tampering is that some countries will target data integrity to either sow confusion or to degrade faith in the government. And they may also be looking to kind of prep the battlefield by establishing backdoors into organizations or software that they can then use for for future operations later. So uh, an example of this would be, in some cases, we've seen governments who are in nation states who are using this to tamper with things like election results, either through typically through public facing websites, which while not permanently damaging can cause a lot of issues with people trusting the results of an election, trusting the the country's websites, or in some cases, private enterprises websites and, and the results that they provide. In addition, we've seen this in some other forms where they're actually tampering with things like levels of chemicals in critical utilities. We saw this in Florida where some um, levels of different chemicals were changed in a water treatment facility, which if it had stayed that way, could have poisoned thousands of people within that city. So there's a lot of opportunity here for attackers to make use of this and to do it in a much more covert way than some of these other means of cyber attack. And typically they're done to focus more on that character of a nation and to try to break that down. I expect that given what we've seen with the um, Russian-Ukrainian war, we're going to see this type of cyber attack become much more popular, especially in conjunction with kinetic conflict. And it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because it can undermine confidence in whole systems just by changing relatively small quantities of data, I suppose. Absolutely. That's the the scariest part about it is that it's something that is difficult to identify, is difficult to validate as being false or as being changed, and can really affect the way that people look at what's publicly available or what's available on a particular website or asset um, and whether or not they're willing to trust it. So tampering at the moment might be less overt than some of the other attacks, but actually the trend is towards more overt attacks, isn't it? There's a lot more experimentation to that end. Now, most of what I expect we'll see there is going to be focused on on instances where there's already a active threat happening in the physical world and less so on just doing things like changing chemical levels at a, at a water treatment plant just to try it out. But for sure right now, there's a lot more experimentation being done, seeing what can, what is possible um, for the future, unfortunately. 
Indeed. But espionage is not going to go away. It's probably one of the oldest forms of nation-state cyber attack and not always easy to detect. In fact, if it's done well from the point of view of the attacker, they may not want it to be detected at all. Do you still see that as a risk to organisations? Espionage is a cost of doing business for every single nation state. There is not a nation state that is not using espionage. There is no nation state that's going to stop using that. You're 100% right is one of not only the oldest forms of, of cyber attack, but also just the oldest forms of what a nation does to protect itself and to do actually aid with defense that's available is having that type of information. So that there's not going to be any change in that happening um, in the future, but ultimately it's something that every business needs to be prepared for because it can affect things like your own personal um, or your company's own intellectual property and some of your market differentiation. In addition, as with any of these attacks, the big concern that I have for private enterprises is the fact that the more that these attacks affect national security and affect the security of nations, the more control nations are going to want to have over the way that companies are defending themselves, even private enterprises. And this is one of the dilemmas when it comes to cybersecurity, because the vast majority of critical infrastructure is in the private sector. And actually, in the report, you do a breakdown looking at different sectors across the United States and Germany. And it's interesting, actually, how little of CNI, as we understand it, is actually in the government domain. So governments then do not directly control the defences organizations trading in these spaces, and that includes airport operators, critical manufacturing, commerce, communications, banking, healthcare, it, it's a vast range. They're having to invest their own money, their own shareholders' funds in these defenses. So that makes it quite hard, doesn't it? Because sometimes these nation-state attacks are a little bit harder to foresee and a little bit harder to explain to shareholders or investors or stakeholders you know, why you need to protect. Why do we have to spend your money to protect the organisation when actually it's an attack against the country, the nation, rather than this individual firm? And how do you see that playing out? And particularly, are we seeing that private sector firms are really collateral damage from actions that states are taking against each other? Or is there more to it than that? There's more to it than that. One of the things that we've seen in tech more broadly is that many of the companies that are the biggest in tech have the power of ultimately, in some cases, of nations, right? We talk about this a lot when it comes to even things like tech regulation. We have heard many times, if you ask any tech person who the biggest regulator of Facebook is right now, they'll say Apple. They won't say a particular nation. These companies have a ton of influence and have their own pull and their own challenges when it comes to geopolitical risk and when it comes to to some of these nation state attacks. And so this is it's an imperative for businesses to be prepared for this especially as they do things like try to transition to new markets or even try to work within the confines and the bounds of the regulations that are in place in in their main country of operation it becomes particularly challenging for them, especially once you get to the multinational level, because you're dealing with a range of requirements. But even with some of the activities that we're seeing with businesses, 
trying to move some of their operations out of China or to manage some of their supply chain in China and have a backup there or in different places, there's a lot geopolitically that dictates how a organization operates and dictates their strategy. And that extends to the cyber realm and is going to get worse over time. And one of the things that I call out is that most private sector organizations have been dealing with this since like 1999. This is not a new thing, cyber attacks from nation states. But the way that the government is approaching it and the regulations that they're putting in place and, and the realization of how much it can affect the security of a nation is going to change the way that enterprises need to protect themselves because it gets beyond just, okay, we need to stop this cyber attack into, we need to also make sure that we are covered in the event that a particular government says, you didn't do enough to protect our citizens and you need to establish these certain minimums around security and these certain compliance metrics, et cetera. We'll pick the point up about defense in a moment, but before we go there, just in terms of the motivation, has it changed so that prior nation-state-backed attackers would largely have been unconcerned by collateral damage to private enterprises, potentially even to private citizens, as long as they achieve their objectives. But now, actually, they're going after those private organizations because they see that as potentially a weak spot in government's defenses. Again, the supply chain, which is an example that comes up from time to time, if you can hit the civilian supply chain, whether that's in software, hardware, resources you're then in a position where you can disable government's activities, whether it's in the military domain or in the civil domain. One of the things that the Biden administration called out in one of their most recent um, releases regarding the national cybersecurity strategy is the term national power, which is another military term that really encompasses all of the means that a nation has in order to establish itself and establish itself on a global stage as a, a power player and as a, as a superpower. One of the things that this called out is the fact that there are a lot of private enterprises that are a part of a country's national power. And this is something that I talk about in the report. This is something that I'm going to be talking about more in follow-on reports. Most of the models that we have and have had over the past 100 years regarding what makes up national power have been based around what's called the diamond midfield models. So these incorporate things like um, the geography of a nation and some of the, the assets, whether it's the defense industrial base, et cetera. One of the things they often leave out is the tech sector, which is because, I mean, a hundred years ago, naturally it was not as a as big of a thing as it is now. The tech sector has revolutionized the way that a country demonstrates its power across the globe and has changed, completely fundamentally changed what dictates a powerful nation. So ultimately, it is a huge priority for for many nations to take into account what these organizations are doing and why, particularly in tech, because it is a matter of their their national security and it is a sign of their national power and, and how well their national power is able to be maintained. So the tech 
industry as a whole and the changes that we've seen in the tech industry have largely dictated this change to the point where it's so important for for private enterprises to be addressing nation state activity. How do the changes that we're seeing in nation state threats affect the way that CISOs should approach the problem, particularly that they don't have unlimited funds? That's my biggest concern. There aren't unlimited funds. And that was one of the things that came up during this research quite a bit was, okay, it sounds lovely to be able to defend against nation state attacks more holistically, but I have a million other priorities and I, I don't understand how this is differentiated from some of the ones that I already have. And my answer to that is that overall, you need to continue your security strategy as it is. But when it comes to very important either assets or point in time activities, there are certain instances where your organization needs to be more prepared than others. The um, Linus Rare Earth uh, company that I mentioned earlier is a great example of this, right? You don't automatically think that when you're moving into another region and trying to expand your operations, that you're going to be hit with a disinformation attack by a nation state because it affects their their perceived national power. But that's exactly what's starting to happen and is going to happen more and more. And if the in that case, the CISO and the security team had reviewed the implications geopolitically of moving into this new region and put together a plan to defend better against that, it would have been an instance where they could have had a lot more control in that scenario than they ended up with. This is similarly um, important for things like during elections, where a obviously any news source is a big target, especially local news um, during election season and election day, but also it could potentially affect things like public utilities, like the electric grid, like polling places, all of these different assets. And so by threat modeling based upon the geopolitical risks and in particular, the time that you're most likely to be affected, it can help you defend better and in a more targeted fashion to events that really matter and are places where you're most likely to see additional nation state activity. You're also flagging potential legal and regulatory responses in the sense that governments may start to, in fact, they already have started to legislate to require organizations to improve cyber defenses and, and indeed to spend more on this. How big an impact do you think that's going to have? What's it going to mean for business? That will have the biggest impact of any of this, ultimately. And we've already seen the start of that with um, with some of the, the Biden administration's recent announcements around the national cybersecurity strategy, as I mentioned earlier. Ultimately, the, the thing that's going to drive requirements for cybersecurity defense against nation states is government requirements. And a big goal in writing the report now was to get ahead of some of this so that enterprises can be prepared. When thinking about the, the challenges that come along with this, if you look at even something like um, Colonial Pipeline as an example and the ransomware attack that hit them, despite it not being something that was driven by nation state activity, it's still meant that they were swarmed with different government agencies attempting to figure out the implications for their particular departments, their particular organizations, and, um, and the citizens that they, that they serve. Even 
coordinating a response like that in such a way that does not result in the company being held liable for some elements of what someone may have said or done in the moments after the attack, that is incredibly, incredibly important to get done right. And so a big part of this, and and honestly, probably the biggest part of this is making sure that you're aware of the regulations that are coming down the pike, the particular agencies across nations that are going to come to you if an attack happens and what you need to do to respond effectively and to not put yourself in a potential situation of liability. And indeed, government agents may not be there specifically to help you. They may be there to do other things. They may be there to capture evidence. They may be there to provide a fire break between their systems and industry systems. There are all manner of reasons why they would need to respond. But you do have a notion or a concept of informed defence. And you've also got a number of steps that organisations can take that you advocate in the report. Uh, could you just walk us through those steps that you recommend that firms, particularly in the CNI space, but also beyond that, where they may be impacted by these type of threats, those steps that you believe they should be taking now? So the first step that needs to be taken is to understand what nation state cyber attacks actually look like. And this is a particular priority um, to me because a lot of times the attribution can be very difficult. And a lot of times the moniker nation state threat or sophisticated threat can be thrown around without actually having evidence that that's what's driving it. And so one of the things that I think is most important is understanding what will these attacks actually look like and making sure that you understand what the motivation is to lead to that end. You're not going to see a nation just hitting a private organization with a a ransomware attack for no reason. There will be a motivation because otherwise it just doesn't, it doesn't gain them political capital. And if anything, it causes political conflict that is not going to benefit them in the long term. So that comes back to understanding the um, escalation ladder for, for cyber attacks, understanding exactly what types of attacks are most useful for a nation state and when before starting to think about how do you actually threat model based on attacks that are specific to your organization that a nation state would use. So in order to do that, it's a, it can be a pretty complicated process for anybody who has participated in, in threat modeling before, but it requires an understanding of top geopolitical actors that you expect will target your organization to understand the implications, even if you are not, and especially if you are not a part of critical infrastructure, critical infrastructure is one of many different um, groups of industry that are affected by these types of attacks. You do not need to be a critical infrastructure provider to be targeted by a nation state threat actor for, especially for things like cyber espionage or potentially tampering or any of these, these different attributes. So keeping that in mind as well, that just because you're not a critical infrastructure does not mean that you are not going to be affected by this. Um, Building incident response plans that align to the threat models that you've created, and in particular, building detections based off of the types of attacks that you'd expect by cross-referencing the top geopolitical actors and then the attacks that you most expect them to do. And then as a part of your incident response planning, understanding when and where general counsel needs to be involved and continuing to update those. And then the last piece is to start 
influencing the different narratives around nation state cyber attacks and how they affect the private sector. So understand where, which jurisdictions your enterprise is going to fall under, which governments you are most likely to be um, regulated by or to be involved in the case of an incident manage your relationship with them and make sure you have a connection and that they're familiar with you either through different resources like government organizations. InfraGuard is a great example where critical infrastructure providers can be a part of that. Even just working through ISACs as well can be a great way to connect not just to governments, but also to the broader community. And then making sure that you're doing that preparation ahead of time, especially for very critical geopolitical incidents. That can go all the way to the board as well. And putting these in, this in terms of geopolitical risk can also help the board better understand the challenges and, and how to best move forward and, and try to address them and give them some stake in the game, so to speak. Ali Mellon on the need to explain geopolitical risks to the board and on how greater collaboration across industries can bolster our defences. That, though, is all for this episode of Security Insights. Our next episode will be in two weeks' time when we'll be reviewing new European cybersecurity legislation. Meanwhile, do catch up on past programmes on our website, securityinsights.co.uk, or subscribe and rate the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon or Spotify. Thanks again for listening.